Welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfand. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. So uh, our listeners who might have been tuning in a year ago may recall that I was uh, in Paris for six months at that time. And the apartment where I lived with my daughter and recorded those episodes was right behind a concert hall called the Bataclan. Our front door looked out on the back door of the theater, which the rest of the world has now seen since the terrorist attacks earlier this month. Um, there's a uh, video uh, that's just horrifying to watch that shows uh, bodies being dragged out out that door, I guess, and down the street. There's a uh, uh, dramatic scene with a pregnant woman hanging from an upper story window, um, being too afraid, properly afraid, to jump and being pulled in by uh, some other people and uh, who were subsequently taken hostage. So um, that must have just been startling to basically see the scene that you saw every day for six every months. Every day. So this, this was our little street. Um, my daughter went one way to go to the metro to school. I went the other way to the school where I was teaching. Uh, and, you know, initially we were concerned that it would be dark and, and desolate. But in fact, the back... Uh, alley was very well lit because that's where the bouncers were, the back door, and, and, and where all the artists who were performing there came and went with their equipment. So uh, it was, ironically for us, a very safe place. There was a cafe on the corner where we met our friends coming in to visit from the United States. Uh, it's a wonderful cafe uh, with great Wi-Fi, and they were. this was our hood. This was where we hung out, and it was our home for half a year. And so to not only read about these uh, atrocious stories coming one after the other, the, the numerous attacks in Paris, of which the Bataclan was, of course, only one. But to have the visual d- demonstrative evidence of what was going on, I mean, that was a civilian shot video from probably either the building we were living in or the building next door. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it may not be a design story per se, but it is a highly visually um, uh, impactful story. The the soccer game, uh, the, the Vine video that was shot through a cell phone and put on Vine is apparently the most viewed Vine ever. The, the, one, the, one where they're, the one where they're in the middle of the match and you can hear the explosion and then... Exactly. And the play on the field sort of is interrupted where everyone kind of like is, what is that? Yeah. Unbelievable. Uh, and then, of course, you know, video is, is ever since, I think, I mean, the first time I remember ever, ever being aware that video and photographs could get a story out before the news could get there was uh, Tiananmen Square. You know, many, many years ago that pictures were technically embargoed, but people were just shuffling through what were very, very early days of digital images. And now, of course, we do that with film and with video on Vine, on Facebook. Um, Facebook did another amazing thing. I have I have to say, I, I've been critical in the past of uh, um you know, social media being too uh, too much sort of fueled by the platitude of the moment. Uh, but they did a very interesting thing, which was that they uh, created a safe button. So if anybody who, is, who lives in Paris or spends time in Paris, it's, it's on my profile page because I'm back and forth. Uh, you'd get an immediate notice, tell people you're safe. And so you just click this button. And, and one by one, the whole evening, my daughter and I watched as our friends, my students, people that we knew there were logging in and letting the rest of the world know they were okay. Yeah, and, and, and you know, and Facebook, Facebook was criticized, actually, uh, uh, not for that, but because, um, you know, there were um, uh, attacks, terrorist attacks in Lebanon, you know, just uh, within the previous week. The, you know, they did neither that nor created a, uh, a filter that you could put over your face to show your so- solidarity with the people of Lebanon, nor uh, uh, the subsequent attack uh, 
uh, that happened uh, uh, this past week in, um, in, Mali. in Mali. Yeah, and so I think it's you, you, know, you, it, know, you know it's interesting. I have to say I'm I'm less on board with the with the you know put the rainbow or the French flag on your face, but the things that are actionable, where you, social media becomes this conduit to action, you know, it's suddenly the the stupidity or the the, the relative innocuous playful silliness of somebody Instagramming their lunch is is no longer really you know suddenly you realize that that people can actually be be impactful and helpful and uh, meaningful in terms of other people's lives. And of course how you know how frightening and and distressing it is to know that uh terrorist networks like ISIS are using exactly those same tools more or less in exactly the same way um to build up their own networks and their own support, you know, the battle for hearts and minds, the control of information, the power that comes from that control happening online. It re- you know with uh, with Twitter, with Facebook, with other social networks, with YouTube, with Vine, you know, those things are, um, you know, really being placed in opposition to each other. And did you see that um, uh, that announcement from uh, the the hacker group Anonymous saying, declaring war, more or less? And, and like how, you know, you really do feel like you're being, at least I have the sensation of like thinking, wow, we really are living a science fiction movie now. I spend a lot of time with young people. I only teach freshmen at Yale. I have two teenage children. And there is, I think, without overstating it, there's a kind of invincibility that comes with people of that age. They don't think about death. They don't think about destruction in terms of their own immediate orbit. Uh, And it's hard not to feel uh, an increasing sort of sense of vulnerability when these things happen to innocent people. And I think I've seen my students here, my own children, really very uh, obviously uh, affected by by this news. And there was a student a number of years ago, this is two or three years ago now, who had taken uh, a terrorist video. And because he was such a good aper of form, he was able to strip out the really ugly yellow bubble type uh, of this terrorist video, guys in flak jackets with guns at the ready, and uh, put in his own text. And he wanted to use the, the resulting mashup to, quote-unquote, fund a revolution on, on Kickstarter. And I was on a jury, and everybody on the jury, uh, everyone was European but me, everybody from these very cutting-edge, interesting universities and, and art and design programs across Europe thought this was revolutionary in the way that art and design should be, that he was really uh, was subversive, it was provocative, and I went crazy. And I shut down the conversation for two hours, and I said this was morally reprehensible, we couldn't do this. And, you know, in, in context, I sound like some, you know, like uh, extremist myself. But what I, was, what I was really taken with was the fact that once unmoored from our own laptops and imaginations and desks, the things we put out in the world take on their own kind of crazy consequential uh, uh, effects on other people. And that politically you can't actually, you don't know what that thing is going to be when it goes viral. You don't know how people are going to respond to it. And that we never talk about this in design, this, this, con- this concept of consequence, the consequence of the things we make and our actions and how other people see them. A lot of what designers do, a lot of what graphic designers do specifically is, um, you know, we take messages and we, we're the costume masters of those messages. You know, um, the dialogue sometimes is written by others. The stage upon which the dialogue is performed is a context that is, can be non-negotiable. But we can actually figure out how we're going to attire the character who's uttering those phrases in a way. And uh, we can make it look, you know, I mean, as your student was, you sort of like, trans, you know, you, you take the same message and you transform it by 
recasting it in uh, in another persona in a way. If if you get good at that, you almost unconsciously become un unmoored. Yeah, yeah, you sort of become unmoored without thinking from from what you, what you said, what those what those consequences are. Uh, you think you're either doing your job if you're a working professional, if you're a student, you're just sort of uh, you know experimenting with uh, the the frisson that accompanies you know code switching or just you know the momentary the momentary dis, you know disorientation that comes from taking one thing and making it be another thing and the fact that all of these things you know if they are going to communicate at all they inherently have meaning and those meanings have um affect people's lives in the real world is something that is so easy to forget and i think it's easy to forget because typefaces and you know graphic forms are relatively they can be so effortlessly manipulated compared with you know architecture and more vaunted forms of design and you don't know what people are going to remember right like you don't know the things that actually sear themselves into our minds and visually become that you don't never know what's going to go viral you never know what's going to actually become in, in a sense iconic and it, it makes me think about this um did you see the story about um, what, what I'm what I've uh, uh, called this morning to in an email to somebody the the pathologist pigeons? Such a great story. So this is a story about a guy who for forty years has been working with pigeons and finds that their visual recall is so extraordinary that uh, they actually had them looking at benign and malignant tumors, breast cancer tissue. Like what? Like and a, pigeons like a, a, X-rays. Un, un, X-ray. So they basically put these pigeons in a room. They showed them these uh, pretty amazingly um, detailed examples of high-resolution images of, of, of malignant and benign breast tissue. But over 15 days, these pigeons had about 85% accuracy in diagnosing, you know, which was actually four pigeons, much cheaper than a radiologist. You know, they, they had an unbelievable what they called flock sourcing instead of crowdsourcing, flock sourcing, um, high, high accuracy on diagnosing what was malignant and what was not. So, you know, it's been shown, obviously, over time, you have to go to medical school to be, become a clinician, become a radiologist, and understand what disease tissue looks like. But they were just looking at pattern recognition, right? They have incredible memory and incredible visual memory. And people are so um, afraid of, uh, you know, AI, of creating machines that can teach each other and learn on their own and eventually become smarter than us and take over the world, a la Terminator. I was in a, um, I test drove a Tesla, actually, and, you know, it has a self-driving feature, which is both cool and, like, really scary, you know, so I think everyone's becoming attuned to the idea that uh, we're creating machines that might take over the world, but perhaps this is all just a, uh, a bit of misdirection, and the real enemy is um, pigeons. <laughs> I, I'd sooner, I'd sooner flock to pigeons than to those headsets that came with my New York Times last week in cardboard. Um, and no, I think, you know, there's obviously, there's a great tradition of biomimicry. There's that wonderful Janine Benyus book about uh, looking at bird patterns to understand air traffic control. And, 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 you know, Da Vinci did this looking at the idea that you look at animals or at the natural world as, as a uh, better sort of uh, infrastructure, kind of a simulacra of what, what humans can do. Um, but this is, there's just something so kind of primal and, and interesting about these birds. And, and the idea that they, they learn how to generalize, that they have this sort of um, uh, histological accuracy, right? So like humans can be, can understand color. 
uh, and they can understand pattern. But, you know, birds in general, I, I learned this by, I brought my students this week, in fact, to the Peabody Museum at Yale, where there are 20,000 dead birds and unbelievable research going on uh, about uh, birds and what they what they can do, how they, how they uh, their, their patterns of recognition of one another and mating habits and all the things that ornithologists look at. But uh, my, the students and I learned that uh, birds have an entirely additional focal lens through which they can see things. They have, they have a uh, higher uh, capacity for seeing things. They can see colors we can't see. We've stopped being able to see certain colors. They can actually see them. They can see variations in color. So it could have something to do with that too, but I, I think it's amazing. It is amazing. It really is amazing. This is the Observatory. I'm Michael Beirut. Jessica Halfin and I are talking about things that are on our minds in the air and have something to do with design. We're thinking about design, and uh, I recently had a big dose of design thinking in the form of a major, major front page Sunday business section story on the uh, design revolution that's in progress at IBM right now. It prominently featured the elements of the legendary IBM Rebus poster designed by Paul Rand. Curiously, I, the one thing that struck me, and I think it's symptomatic of something, was that uh, their commitment to design, IBM's commitment to design, was expressed almost with the brute force of numbers, the idea of thousands of designers being hired to join specifically their design center down in Austin, Texas. Um, whereas I, I had this idea, and Jessica, you might confirm this, I mean, my sense was that IBM in its... Uh, 60s heyday was basically Paul Rand, who had an assistant up there in Connecticut, um, Elliot Noyes and his relatively small studio, Eero Saarinen and uh, the architecture he did. And it sort of was just not even a Rolodex, but actually just a few index cards with some names and phone numbers on it. You know, the uh, good design is good business era of IBM led by their CEO, Thomas Watson Jr., was really led by a relatively small elite cadre of high priests. I couldn't agree more, and at the risk of a fatwa going out on my head from IBM and the entire design thinking community, uh, I, you know, Rand would have hated this. <laughs> he really, he just, he just wanted to make stuff, and he wanted to make stuff that was good. And, you know, he wanted to, as many designers, I think, will recognize this idea that you think through making. That, you know, I, I, my students come to me and they say, I have an idea for a project. And I say to them, I want to see the project. You have, to, you have to iterate the thing. You have to actually make the thing. And so the best line in this article, I thought, from the New York Times was, and I quote, to the uninitiated, the canons of design thinking can sound mushy and self-evident. End quote. Which is true. I mean, it's, if you're not thinking like a designer, what do you think? Let me th design thinking is creative thinking. It's, it's creative problem solving. There's in, in the New York Times subsequent to that uh, piece running, a bunch of um, letters arrived in the business section, all sort of protesting that uh, there's nothing, that this is not new. And, they, and many of them appear to be from either um, former employees of IBM or students of the IBM culture saying, you know, we were doing these kind of innovations there for years and didn't uh, uh, try to put a mantle of design thinking or anything else on them, but we sort of were able to innovate without thousands of people uh, doing these things. I think probably the, the thing that, 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 that this company and many others are wrestling with is just uh, 
how do you sort of uh, design for a world that's largely, um, you know, that lives in the cloud, that's just as much about service as about product, that's about experience rather than uh um, appearance, and I think um, uh, it's uh, if you sort of are an old school designer, um, it's a disorienting sort of transition to be forced to make. I mean, I remember really distinctly in Thomas Watson's autobiography, he actually talks um, compellingly about what about his like you know his epiphany that he had that made him convinced that he had to bring design into IBM in the 50s and it was walking along Park Avenue and seeing a uh, a window display for the Italian typewriter company Olivetti which um, uh, in those days being Italian made them automatically just much more stylish and they had you know amazing products and graphics and everything and he said everything in that Olivetti window fit together like a beautiful picture puzzle and uh, when he looked at IBM's things they looked like a recipe for making I think he said like Pepto-Bismol or something you know it's sort of he just uh Realize, and but but there's something like it was completely tangible. It was like stuff in a window. It had nothing at all to do with uh, quote unquote delighting customers. It had nothing at all to do with anything. It just was sort of the normal human impulse to kind of have things look organized and nice rather than random and ugly. The other story this week that we might mention is the hundredth anniversary of the iconic Coca-Cola bottle. There's been a lot of press on this this week in the business news uh, on NPR. They read a marvelous story. Uh, Linda Tischler and David Butler have a new um, a book called Design to Grow that came out earlier this year, which they talk about the design of the bottle that came out in 1915 and was meant to, to, to resemble a cocoa pod, um, which I'd not realized. But of course, when you look at it, it does look like that. Um, but the story that got, got me, uh, uh, that, that I thought actually laughed out loud about, you mentioned walking down the street, the, the story of walking down the street and seeing the Olivetti typewriter on Park Avenue. This bottle was designed uh, in, the, in Indiana. This was, that bottle was designed in the hinterlands. And, and there's some pride in the fact that it didn't come out of some fancy New York design office. And um, Coca-Cola as a, an icon, and I would even offer... From a branding point of view, from a graphic design point of view, it's a system of interrelated, interlocking, iconic visual representations. Uh, you have a, you know, the, what's called the contour bottle, that shapely bottle that we associate with Coca-Cola, and then you've got the, um, you know, the Coca-Cola calligraphic signature, which has changed since it was originally invented in the late. Um, uh, 19th century, I believe, but barely. You know, it's evolved and gotten smoother and more cleaned up, but it's recognizably much more like it was at the beginning than than different, right? And one of my treasured uh, bits of ephemera that I've collected over the years is a graphic design standards manual. Not really a standards manual. It's more what you'd call like a brand spirit book today, I believe, that Lippincott and Margulies, the uh, corporate identity firm, published in around 1969, I believe, which uh, represented this brilliant um, grand reconciliation of all the Coke assets, which was represented at that time basically by three things, by the calligraphic Coca-Cola logo, by the contour bottle, and the color red. And they synthesized all of them together by creating this uh, fourth thing that you'll be able to picture in your mind pretty clearly, which is called the dynamic ribbon. That's the uh, that kind of like wavy thing 
that simultaneously, um, you know, kind of evokes the curves of the logo, the curves of the contour bottle, and rendered in red and white reinforces that color. Now that you've said it out loud on our podcast, I'm just waiting for somebody to turn it into Donald Trump's hair. <laughs> no, the, 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 the beautiful wavy contour, uh, contour icon we enjoy in the 21st century. But I thought that that, you know... And and it is funny, it sort of is one of those weird things, almost like pigeons in a way. It seems like it's actually almost like pre-conscious or it's just sort of like, you know, kind of all came together without any, you know, active human intervention. And then what's beautiful about this uh, Libincott and Margulies document is that it just gives us this slight nudge that kind of shows, wait, they all line up. And not for nothing that um, Matthew Weiner ends up kind of making... uh, um, Coca-Cola, more or less, the punchline at the end of Mad Men. And evidently, I just read an interview, I think, with uh, uh, with Elizabeth Moss. He knew he was going to end that way really early on. And, uh, yeah, like knew, knew, like, after a few seasons that that's where he wanted to take it, and that was going to be the very, very last scene. Really? Oh, that's so interesting. And uh, it's interesting to watch, uh, you know, kind of the uh, him lay the groundwork for that in here and there in little places. Uh uh, you know, um, McCann Erickson, their longtime ad agency, becomes a uh, uh, an on again, off again uh, antagonist in the uh, in the proceedings, uh, almost simply so that he can kind of pull that trigger in the last scene. So it's really kind of beautiful. And um, speaking of icons that uh, became huge and perhaps even literally huge uh, in the uh, world of entertainment. Um, the Ghostbusters logo is something that probably uh, once was voted um, like the, the, the favorite logo of, uh, of, you know, of everyone in the world, or at least in America, more, more than Coca-Cola, more than, more than IBM, I guess. And uh, the designer of that logo, Michael Gross, uh, uh, just died, actually. And um, he had a very, very special skill, Michael Gross did, because he was the um, art director of the National Lampoon at its absolute peak in the early 70s and had more than any designer I can think of this almost effortless, perfect pitch uh, of what you referred to earlier in the in today's episode is mimicry. He could actually just, if you needed a, um, a late fifties high school yearbook design, he could simulate that typography, art direct the photography, get it, you know, get every detail just looked exactly right. Uh, at the national lampoon, his real genius was, um, the writers there would do these really detailed parodies of, you know, if, uh, the United States, uh, put out postage stamps to kind of commemorate its failures, what would they look like? He could make them look like postage stamps, exactly like the postage stamps that you, uh, spent many hours, um, reviewing, uh, in your role working for the, uh, you know, the, the stamp committee, you know? And so, and, and, that, and to me, that's a, it's a, it's a skill I suspect that every graphic designer, has and secretly enjoys, and he just reveled in it. So I think um, coming up with a... Do you um, think it was... Was he a household name? Not at all. On the contrary, not at all. Not at all. So this is... He falls under the, you know, let us now praise not-so-famous art directors um, canon. That, that, you know, one of these people who was just prolific, and yet, you know, whose name is not known uh, to the average designer. 
Yeah, and I remember um, uh, I did a piece on Design Observer about this when they reissued this, you know, the National Lampoon High School Yearbook, uh, which um, had been published as a standalone publication um, in the '70s. They reissued it, um, you know, decades later because without changing it at all, it just was like so great. And um, I wrote a little piece on Design Observer about it, and I sort of realized. Uh, in putting this piece together that he really anticipated, you know, the kind of revitalization of vernacular design that people like Tibor Coleman and others actually d- did as well, but with a little bit of veneer of irony and hipness to it. What, what, what was interesting about Michael Gross, who was not like a hip, cool art director, uh, um, he sort of really sincerely loved all that stuff, I think, and could and just had this perfect pitch. When when they hired him at the Lampoon, he was replacing um, the original art directors there, who were much more late '60s hippie underground press art directors. And Michael Gross was a graduate of Pratt, had worked at some really conventional magazines, and uh, uh, and some of the editors there supposedly were like, "Why are we hiring this square guy to work at our incredibly hip magazine?" And then he just said, "Look, it's not funny." You guys keep doing these jokes, and then the way you're actually visually rendering them, you're kind of sticking your elbow in people's ribs and saying, wink, wink, get the joke, get the joke. And instead, what you want to do is deliver them absolutely deadpan, you know? And and he just had this way of, he was just like a classic art director, you know, conceived a series of covers for the Lampoon, which were just remarkable. The most famous of which, of course, uh, was started out as a... Um, as a, uh, a, a subscription promotion, they decided to make it a cover, and it's just as basically, it sounds terrible to say, it really sounds awful, but just like, just like, there are certain jokes that kind of get their power from how awful they are. Um, it's a, um, it's a, uh, a dog with a gun pointed in his head and says, if you don't buy this magazine, we'll kill this dog. We'll shoot this dog. And supposedly getting the dog's expression to look sufficiently alarmed about the gun being pointed. Because dogs, you know, dogs aren't like pigeons, which are really smart. Dogs are kind of like dumb. It's like, oh, uh, a gun. What's that? You know, they say, like they don't care. So supposedly it just took a long time to get this very, very handsome photograph of this uh, dog to look exactly right. And his eyes are kind of like going off to the side. It's really, really... Um, uh, it's it's an awful cover and it's funny and I can't and I also I can't even imagine that it would be okay to put on the newsstand today. It's just I think things are much uh, much different now. It's sort of talk about something that re- literally requiring a trigger warning. You know, it's like <laughs> violence, sadism. It's like an awful thing. On the other hand, the benign joys of the Ghostbusters logo. If if a commercial enterprise dedicated to um, battling supernatural possession required a corporate identity, what would that logo look like? And I think he just kind of could come up with the answer that not only was the right answer, but things that everyone could recognize and feel like, oh, it's always been there. So uh, that that symbol actually ranks up there with icons that have uh, legitimate and well-funded enterprises behind them uh, is just a remarkable testimony, I think, to what design imagination, and I dare say real design thinking can do. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com. You can find links there to things we discussed on today's show, including that study of pigeons reading mammograms. Between episodes, keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter, and let us know what you thought of the show and if something you want to hear us talk about next time. You can subscribe to The Observatory on iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you take your podcasts. 
Go to designobserver.com slash the observatory. That's designobserver.com slash the observatory. And if you're not listening already, please tune into our other podcast, Design Matters, with Debbie Millman. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Talk to you soon, Michael. Thanks, Jessica. Talk to you soon. Thank you.